0: Amen. How many of you love the Word of God? You're thankful for the Word? I have found in my life and and my walk with God that nothing takes the place of the Word of God. I've tried a lot of things. Um, I I am a worshiper. Uh, I get a little little wild with my worship. Some of y'all don't know how to take me. Um, I believe in prayer. Prayer is powerful. Prayer connects us with God and God with us. I believe in those things. But nothing replaces the Word of God. The Word of God will stand, it says about itself, when everything else is gone and disintegrated, burned up in the fire, God's Word will still stand. So this morning, we're going to begin a new series of messages that's going to be different than anything you're used to. It's going to stretch from now to the very last Sunday of October. It's going to be nine sermons over the course of ten weeks. We're going to take a break in the middle of it because we're going to have an anniversary celebration and we'll have a guest speaker coming for that week. But we're going to deal with the Word of God in nine weeks. And what's interesting about this series is we're going to use this time together to connect the dots of the Bible. Over the next two months, we're going to explore the entire story of the Bible from cover to cover. We're going to call it Connect the Dots because each week we're going to try to draw a line from one story to the next story to the next story in order to get them all to connect. So the day that we live in finds us at an absence of truth. The world doesn't want to believe that there is an absolute truth anymore. The world that you live in is trying to aggressively remove the idea that anything is true. They want to be able to develop truth around their life. They want to be able to develop truth around their decisions. They want to be able to determine what truth is by where they are living. They want to make their own truth. But this book tells a different story. See, I want to I talk to you. Before I begin this series and before I start reading between the, the, the covers, I want to talk about this book because this is the most influential book that was ever written. It's also the most controversial book ever written. You never see anybody attacking the Koran. You never see anybody attacking Gone with the Wind or War and Peace. Your Harlequin Romance books is not up for debate with anybody. But this book, this book separates fathers from sons. It separates nations, people groups from people groups because it is the most amazing piece of literature that has ever been written. And if you've never taken time to find out about this book, let me give you some details about it. It is a collection of 66 books and yet it tells one story it's written over a period of 2000 years and yet it's all in sequenced together there were authors who wrote this book and they were located on three different continents it was written originally in three different languages it has at least 40 different authors some of which were farmers some of them were fishermen there were prophets that wrote this book. There were kings who wrote this book. And some of them were just ordinary people who had an encounter with God. And God, in some way, caused them to write down and record what happened to them. This book was written in caves, it was written in palaces, it was written in fields full of sheep, it was written in prison cells. This book has historical accounts. That history books in libraries will verify and there's also scientific facts in this book that scientists today will certify that are true it's full of different literary styles there's not just one style in this book there's poetry in here there's history in here there are laws in here there is prophecy in here that we have watched be fulfilled and are watching being fulfilled even to this day this is an amazing piece of work this is not just some book that you should occasionally uh, attribute your belief system to you need to know it you need to memorize it you need to lean on it and you need to know that when everything else has fa- failed you this book has stood the test of time now I'm of the belief that second Timothy 316 means what it says and here's what it says the Bible says about itself all scripture is inspired by God and is useful somebody say useful it's not a dust collector for your coffee table it's not a placeholder for when you go to a big conference that's going to be crowded and you need something to keep your seat while you go out in the lobby this book is useful what's it useful for to teach us what is true To make us realize what is wrong in our lives stop right there and now you know why they don't like this book now you know why this book is being attacked and no other piece of literature is because this book tells you what is wrong in your lives it corrects us when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right now if you've ever tried to read your Bible cover-to-cover you've probably come across some areas that you thought weren't very useful Uh, particularly when it starts talking about lineage this one begat that one that begat that one that begat that one and you probably think that's not very important how about when you've come across the book of Leviticus boy that's some fun nighttime reading all these laws thou shalt not thou shalt not thou shalt not you probably think that's not very important but that's not true it all matters why because it's all connected together and each part of this book brings something of value to the overall story. Every word in this book is inspired by God. Written by man, but inspired by God. That means it was quite literally his love letter written for every one of us, everyone who went before us and everybody that will come after us. This is his love letter written to you. Learn it, stand on it. You need this book. Amen. This is the most valuable item that you own. It's not your it's not your gun. I know you think it's your gun. I know you think it's your nine. I know you think it's your car. I know you think it's your house, but the most valuable item that you own is this book. Why? Because it has the keys to your happiness. It has the secrets to a good marriage. It has financial advice. It has child-rearing philosophies. This is your therapy for whatever baggage you're carrying around. Between the pages of this book lies healing for every sickness wholeness for all of your broken parts, freedom from addiction and bondages, and the key to eternal life. This is the most valuable piece of property you own. Uh, but just because it contains all the solutions to all the problems of life doesn't mean it's used very much. As a matter of fact, according to a Barner research study, only 5% of adults said that they interact with the Bible frequently and that the Bible is transforming their relationships and shaping their choices did you see that do you see that sad statistic on the wall behind my head 5% says that they make their choices based on this book what did 2nd what did Timothy tell us what did Paul tell Timothy that was telling us this book is to teach you so if you, only 5% are being taught by this book what's everybody else being taught by something else and something else doesn't have the life that this book has something else doesn't have the instruction that this book has no wonder our world is in the shape that it's in when only 5% of the people says this book means anything to them No wonder the world is going the direction it's going when this book doesn't apply to most people's lives. When nobody's reading it, when no one is applying it, when no one sees the value in it, no wonder marriages are falling apart. No wonder people don't know whether they're a he or a she or a it or a them. No wonder people aren't content with what they have and they're always trying to get something else. No wonder people are sick. No wonder people don't know who to believe or what to believe in. No wonder we can't stand on truth anymore and truth seems to sway with every wind of doctrine that blows by. No wonder people aren't content. No wonder people have no joy. No wonder they're constantly fighting against stuff that's trying to help them in order to grab stuff that's trying to kill them because nobody is reading the instruction manual that God himself gave us for how to live this life. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder. He gave you the instruction manual. For how to have a proper life. I can't help but believe that a lot of the reason we're in, we're, that, that we're in this less centered world is because the Bible has become less central than any generation before. See, we used to lean on the pages of this book. When we established laws and governance, this was the book we used as a manual. We would consult this book when we defined relationships and human decency. We use this book as a map for understanding how to treat each other. These days, we look at this book like it's antiquated, outdated, and no longer relevant in our lives. We consult news stations to tell us what to think. We go to social media as our source of strength and community. So we have, in essence, even in the church, decided that we no longer need this book. So when somebody comes to church and they've never been in church before and they get excited about Jesus and they decide they actually want to open this book and start reading it because they want some guidance for their life, sometimes we open this book and read one scripture and we think we're going to get our guidance and our questions answered like it's a fortune cookie. Y'all looking at me like y'all don't believe me what that has done is it's encouraged a biblically illiterate generation of believers and non-believers who think they're a believer they're living in error but they've got one scripture they can quote so they think they're okay with God they got a tattoo They've got their Facebook page has a motto with Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. At the same time, they're talking about clubbing. They're talking about cheating. They're talking about thieving. They're talking about drugging. They're talking about doing all kinds of stuff, but you can't do that in the name of Christ. But they don't know that because they haven't read the book. They heard a scripture that made them feel inspired. They heard a scripture that made them feel uh, 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 uplifted. And so they want to grab that scripture, pull it out of context, and live their life by that motto while they keep making their own choices. But read the rest of the book. You can't take one scripture, use it as a motto, and throw the rest of it away. Somebody that believes the word of God, give God an amen there so we don't study the word we cherry-pick scriptures that makes us feel good and we lay claim to promises that weren't meant for us and then we get frustrated when it don't work the way we thought it would so what my intention is with this series is i'm going to frame the entire bible in context because you can't just flip through the book and find you something that gives you warm feelings come on church and start claiming stuff with no context oh you don't know, believe me let me give you an example Because some of you think that you should just be all oh, the pastor you just said the whole Bible is good it is good but you got to put it all in context let me show you how dangerous it is to take scripture out of context brothers Genesis chapter 27 begin with verse one says one day when Isaac was old and turning blind he called for Esau his older son and said my son yes father Esau said I'm an old man now Isaac said and I don't know where when I may die so here's what I want you to do verse 3 take your bow and quiver full of arrows go out into the open country and hunt some wild game for me brothers the Bible just called us to hunt let's go oh and if you don't like to hunt how about Peter giving all the all the brothers an excuse John chapter 21 verse 3 Simon Peter said I'm going fishing well we'll all come too they said so they went out on the boat caught nothing all night see honey God wants me and the boys to go fishing on you can't get you can't get mad at me it's Bible you stayed out all night fishing hey I was obeying the Lord Bible told me to go hunt Bible told me to go fish, and not just go fish, but me and the boys go fishing all night long, and I got Bible to back it up. Oh, the ladies are upset with me now, so let me give you something. Hey, dear Lord, I need some help with this husband you gave me. I don't know how to handle him. He is constantly uh, coming against you and your teachings, and he makes me mad. God, I don't know how much more I can take of this man that you have put in my life. God, give me a word. I'm going to open my Bible, and whatever scripture I find, I'm going to believe that it's you speaking to me. And you open to Psalm 58 and 6. Break their teeth in their mouth. Now, that can't be right. That don't sound like Jesus at all. What, Lord, what does that word mean for me? I'm going to open to another scripture. Luke 10 and 37. Go and do likewise. All right, God, you want me to break his teeth in his mouth? You want me to go and do it? When should I do it? Let me, let me find another scripture. John 13, 27. What you do, do it now. <laughs> See how dangerous it is? just take scriptures out of context cherry-pick what you want the Bible to say and just start applying and living by it. And that's what people do. People resort to following Scripture because the Bible fell off the table and opened to a certain page. And now they think they're called to preach. Now they think they're called to divorce their husbands and wives. And you laugh this morning, but I've encountered this thing in my life. I've had people come to me and tell me, I think the Lord wants me to leave my husband because the Bible said, no, 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 the Bible didn't tell you that. Because the Bible can't tell, it to tell you to do something that contradicts another part of the Bible. Now, it is fine for you to read the Bible to get inspiration, but you should also remember that the whole Bible is inspired. So it will inspire you, but it will never inspire you to go against itself. God moved on men to write down exactly what he wanted to communicate to humanity. Here's something else the Bible says about itself. Hebrews 4 and 12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. Cutting between soul and spirit. Stop right there. Don't read it anymore. Listen to me. Cutting between soul and spirit. What is your soul? Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions the Bible cuts between the spirit and your soul you come into church and you got a bunch of soul going on and I don't mean you can dance you got a lot of stuff on your mind you've got a lot of stuff that you're willing through you've got a lot of emotional baggage you carry that soul into the house of God and when the word is proclaimed over top of you while you are living a soulish life yeah I said it and I'm here to represent it just because you said a prayer in an altar don't mean that you are a spiritual person you can be as soulish as the day is long and you come into the house of God and you're bringing all this emotional and this willpower and you're bringing all of this mind control that the enemy has you under and he's got you like we learned in the last series And you bring it to the church But when the word is spoken over you Whether you like it or you don't like it You have to just accept it Because the Bible gets down on the inside of you The word separates your soul from your spirit And starts training you in the ways of righteousness And that's why when you encounter the word of God The truth of God you have two of them. You change or you retreat Because you cannot change truth Truth means what it says and says what it means. And when you encounter truth, you change or you leave. So sometimes when you wonder and you look around, you say, I ain't saw so-and-so in a long time. And it may not be because they didn't like the clothes I wore or the songs we sing or they didn't like the place that they had to sit. But it simply meant that they weren't ready to change. Jesus met a man who had all kinds of money. A rich young ruler he was when a man asked him what he had to do to be saved Jesus said keep the law he said well I've kept the law since I was a little boy what 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 more do I have to do he said throw all that money away and follow me give it to somebody and the Bible says that rich young ruler when confronted with truth refused to change and he left and he was heavy hearted. Listen, sometimes people walk away from God and they know what they're walking away from, but they have to walk away because you have to change or you have to leave. I wish I had a witness in this house. It's not that they just defiantly say, I'm not going to serve you, God. No, no, no. When they leave, they usually leave with their tail tucked between their legs, they usually leave with pain, they usually leave with sorrow. It's just the fact that they're not willing to change. But this word, That's what it says. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. Cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. You know what that means? That means that the Bible is not just a collection of historical thoughts that have no relevance to you and me today. No, it is active. It is alive. And when you read the Bible, it judges not just what you've done, but the attitude behind it. The thoughts that are down in your heart. You thought you were doing something good because it didn't come out your mouth. You were about to break your own shoulder, patting yourself on the back, because you really wanted to tell them all. You really wanted to give them a piece of your mind, but you didn't do it. And you you bit your gum, and you didn't put nothing on Facebook, and you didn't tweet nothing, and you are so proud of yourself. But the Bible says that the word... Don't just judge what you did or didn't do, but it judges the attitude and the thought that was behind it. I feel guilty about stuff I didn't say. I, see, when I first got saved, I used to feel guilty about the stuff I said. Now that I've matured, I feel guilty about feeling ha- Y'all ain't going to help me. I'm the only one. Sometimes I feel like saying stuff that I don't say, and I feel guilty for the stuff I didn't say. Because now that I've matured, the Word of God has done new things to me. Amen. So when you read the Bible, the Bible reads you. So as believers, we don't just read the Bible. It takes authority over our lives. If the Bible says I can, I can. If the Bible says I shouldn't, I won't. If the Bible says it's possible, then I'll believe it. If the Bible says leave it alone, I better run. I don't need culture to tell me it's okay. Okay. I don't need Congress to pass some kind of a law. I don't need the opinion of anybody else. This book tells me what is right and what is wrong and how I'm supposed to live. Give this book some praise in this house if you love it. If I had a dollar for every time somebody comes up to me and says, I wish God would talk to me, then I would be a rich preacher. But anybody that says, I wish God would speak to me, isn't looking in the right place. Because he will speak to you as often as you need him to speak. You just got to look between the pages of the book. So for the next two months, we're going to be taking a really broad view of the story of the Bible. Obviously, I'm not reading this whole thing. We got nine weeks, not nine years. Obviously, I'm not going to hit all the details. What I intend to do is this. I want to give you the main of the Bible and make the dots connect here's the way I approach this series if you had to describe what this book was about to somebody who's never read it I want to give you nine lessons that connect all the dots from Genesis to Revelation that you could explain it to somebody who don't care about types and shadows who don't care about who the four horsemen of the apocalypse are who doesn't care about Ezekiel's wheel inside of a wheel, but just wants to know what this book is about, I want to give you nine ways that you can tell somebody how to believe in this book, what this book is about. If they've never read it, I want you to be able to summarize it for them. So before I begin, I'm going to ask you to do something that most of us don't do anymore. I'm going to ask you to bring a Bible to church for this series. Nothing against your phone app. I'm preaching from an iPad. Nothing against your devices. But for this series, I'm going to ask you to bring a Bible, a physical Bible, to church. And, of course, I'm going to have Scripture on the wall behind my head. But there's something about touching the pages. There's something about making notes in the margin and highlighting scriptures that makes stuff stick in my brain, and maybe it will for you too. Now, now I won't kick you out of class if you don't bring one. It's not uh, Sunday school where I'm going to be standing at the door and all the kids that don't have one going to go be sent to get their mama. I, that's not it. But, but I have studied the Bible for many years. And I can tell you that I have never retained as much information from reading it on my laptop as I have from the old tattered pages of a physical Bible that I sat down and cracked open. So just consider it. For the, for, at least for this series, if you would, um, uh, just consider bringing a physical Bible to the house of God. Now, all that is my introduction to this series. You're welcome. Now time for the sermon. I can't start this story without four words. This story has to start with four words. In the beginning, God. If I started anywhere else in this book, the rest of the book would not make sense. Notice that the Bible begins with those four words. And notice what those four words tell us. God was already there. That means he don't need me, you, theology, doctrine, church denominations, or anybody else to prop him up. He was doing all right all by himself. He was there in the beginning. He'll be there long after we're gone. And he is all by himself, bad as bad can be. Somebody say amen. So God did not invent time in Genesis chapter 1 because God was already in existence in the beginning God he didn't invent time what Genesis chapter 1 does is it tells us about the beginning of our story not the beginning of God's story God's history goes back forever this is the beginning of his history with us I told you that was my introduction My points are going to come real fast. I'm not going to keep you long this morning. I know you think you get nervous and have to already shift. You'll make it, I promise. As you begin reading the Bible, you are introduced to God as the creator. First, before you find out anything else about God, you find out first he is the creator. Now, as we read the Bible, we're going to find out different aspects about him. The further we go through, it's called progressive revelation. But the very first thing you learn about him is that he is the creator of everything. Somebody say everything. So what did he create? Everything. I'm going to read a lengthy passage this morning. I don't apologize for it. This will be the lengthiest passage I read throughout this entire time how do I know because I'm already up to the New Testament preparing these messages I'm really excited this is my wheelhouse I love talking about the word I like faith and I like worship and I like prayer and I like praise and I like fellowship and I like communion but if you get me start talking about the word I love talking about the word there is something about this book that just stokes my fire and gets me excited I'm already working up into the New Testament sermons on this passage so this will be the lengthiest passage that I that I use in this entire series but I want to I want to start with this because it describes everything it describes everything everything you know is about to be wrapped up in these verses everything you've ever experienced is about to be wrapped up in these verses so pardon me as I read his word in his house in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were from under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse and it was so and God called the expanse heaven and there was an evening and there was a morning the second day and God said let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let that and let the dry land appear and it was so, somebody say, So, uh huh. Verse 10 God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, He called seas. And God saw that it was good. Say, Good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and the fruit trees bearing fruit, which is in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, which which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Say good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens and give light upon the earth. And it was so. Do you see a pattern here? It was so. It was so and it was good. It was so and it was good. It was so and it was good. He would speak and something would happen and it was so and it was good. Do you see the the correlation here? So, God said let there be God says let there be and it was so and it was good verse 16 and God made the two great lights the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to be ruled the night and the stars God set them in the expanse of the heaven to rule over the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day now it's about to get serious and God said there it is again let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures let birds fly above the earth and the expanse of the heavens so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swam according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day we're up to day five church and verse 24 and God said let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and creeping things the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and it was so and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything according to their kinds stop right there I don't have the scriptures up here. Good thing I brought my Bible. It's almost as if nature has no recourse but to do what it's told. It's almost as if the natural world don't get to pick what it wants to be. But God said we're going to make male and female, and they're going to reproduce after their own kind and I can't have a penguin that'll have a giraffe because it's not after its kind. It's almost as if God was in control of this thing. It's almost as if when we're introduced to God as the Creator that the creation doesn't get to tell the Creator what they want to be. Now do you see why they hate this book? Now do you see why the world that we're living in don't like the words that are printed in this page? That he made a male and he made them female. And he says, You've got a purpose, and I've created you to be what I've wanted you to be, because my vision is more important than your vision. My desire is more important than your desire. So he puts them in the garden. He, he, he puts them on the earth. And now let's keep reading God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock. Now, verse 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image. Notice who he makes first. And after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. See there, brothers? We have dominion over the fish. There's another scripture that tells us we can go fishing. Have dominion over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created who? Man. He created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female he created them on the sixth day god finished up his creation with his masterpiece and he called it man you hear that ladies his 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 masterpiece after working for six days was the man So when you find a man, just know that's what God had in mind all the time. The first thing we learn in the Bible is that whenever God speaks, something happens. Whatever God puts his mind to and speaks out of his mouth happens. God spent five days creating everything that we know. And on the sixth day, he created us. Why? Why is that important and why do I want to connect the first dot right here? He spends five days getting everything ready for you and me. He created the heavens. He created the earth. He separated the waters from the land. He separated the night from the day. He separated the earth from the atmosphere. He separated the birds from the creeping animals. He separa- and he filled the seas with fish, and he filled the skies with birds, and he filled the land with animals, and he did it all for what was coming next. Everything that was created was created for his masterpiece, man. And the reason he didn't create his masterpiece first was because if he would have created Adam before he created light, Adam would have had to have lived in darkness. If he would have created Adam before he separated the waters from the land, Adam would have been drowning. Had he created Adam before he created gravity, Adam would have been floating in the atmosphere. So he prepared this is this is your first dot for the first week. He prepared everything with great detail for what he had in mind for our life. And God is still doing the same thing right now. You don't know it because it feels like chaos. If you f- go back to the beginning verse, it says the earth was without form and without and was void. That means chaos. And your life oftentimes feels like chaos. Where you are feels like it's dark and has no shape and there is no purpose behind this. But rest assured, God is creating an atmosphere that he is going to place you into. And once he puts you in there, you're going to find out you had everything you needed to survive. Not only the trip to get there, but you survived coming out and when you come out you won't come out empty-handed you're coming out blessed you're coming out stronger you're coming out wiser God prepares everything before he makes his deposit after he created man he was finished because he created everything for Adam in other words he created a garden before man but for the man the garden was being prepared with the man's name on it because God was planning Flowers there, but he wasn't planting them for himself. He was planting them for Adam. Why am I telling you to bring your Bible? This has nothing to do with my sermon. But as I was reading 27 verses, four times I tried to scroll my Bible. Four times. I'm getting too used to that thing up here. Four times while I was reading this thing. I want to make the text bigger. Because when I'm reading my iPad, when I get down near the bottom, I scroll up. You can't do that with this. Four times. I caught myself doing it four times. You didn't know it because I kept reading, but I kept trying. I kept putting my finger over there trying to scroll up. Maybe we do need to bring our Bibles to church. The name of God in Genesis chapter 1 is Elohim. Elohim means strong one. It speaks of his creative power. That's why in the Bible only God is mentioned creating anything. You know man can't create anything? Some of you are going to look at me and say, that ain't true, I built a shed. Really? Where'd you get the wood? Oh, I did it in my own sawmill. Where'd you get the tree? Uh, My grandparents planted the trees. Where'd they get the seed? Uh, You are free to claim your craftsmanship, but make no mistake about it. You didn't make nothing. You reconfigure things. You don't make anything. Only God can create. Only Elohim can create. Creation, Creation, and this is why, again, they hate this book. Creation has God's fingerprints on it. Pay attention and I'll teach you something that's why the world wants to believe in evolution because if the world was created it has fingerprints anything you touch you leave fingerprints on and if our creation has God's fingerprints that means we have to deal with a creator and if the Creator told us how to live we have to listen to his word and that's why the world hates this book so intensely notice that when God got finished with everything he created he said the same word over and over and over it's good it's good the light was good the land was good the sky was good the fish was good the, the, the animals that flew in the air was good And then when he created man if you read uh, Genesis chapter 2 you find out he said that was very good you hear that ladies it's very good. You look over at your husband. You ought to just say, "That's very good." Thank you, Jesus. It was good. It was good. He created. He created everything that you know that you've ever seen. If you've looked through a telescope, he created that. If you've looked through a microscope, he created that. Everything you've ever experienced or known or even thought about. That's what he created in five days. And on sixth day, he said, This is my masterpiece. It's very good. And he put him in his perfect paradise. And paradise wasn't enough. Can I tell you that this story is about to take a drastic, dark, familiar turn? Paradise wasn't enough for them they had everything they had everything can I tell you that human nature always causes us to notice what we don't have and overlook what we do have we focus on the one person who don't like us and take for granted the hundred people that got our backs and that is what happened in the garden There's two trees that are mentioned. Obviously, there's more than two trees in the garden, but two are of notoriety. There's the tree that produces life, and there's a tree that produces the knowledge of good and evil. And out of all the trees in the garden, God said, don't touch that tree, don't eat from that tree, don't don't eat anything from one tree. They had the entire garden, and paradise wasn't enough. They wanted that tree too. I can tell by your silence that you know exactly what I'm preaching about. That you can have all of God's blessings and it not be enough. You want to touch the forbidden thing. You want to touch the thing that you're not supposed to touch. You overlook all the blessings that God has rained into your life and there's this one tree which, by the way, has a talking snake in it And that's the one tree we find Eve standing at and the serpent lies to her God said the moment you eat from this tree you'll die and the serpent presents a lie to her and says you surely won't die in fact God knows that once you eat it you're going to be as smart as he is Genesis chapter 3 verse 6 and 7 says the woman was convinced She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she took some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. This is literally the worst day in human history. It's not the day they bombed Pearl Harbor, it's not the day that the towers fell. It's not the day that they found coronavirus. This is the worst day in human history. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and sin enters not only the world, but it enters into human DNA. From this point going forward, the Bible says every baby that is born is born into a world of iniquity, that you are born with sin in your DNA. And because of what happened in God's garden, every person who's ever been born was born a sinner with only one exception, and his name was Jesus. But once the devil got Eve to question God's word, he then presented her with a choice. And the choice was this deny what God said was true. God said you would die. I'm telling you, you won't die. And the Bible said the woman was convinced. Why is it so much easier to believe a lie than the truth? can I tell you this is the exact way sin still makes it into our lives every single time can I take just a moment and talk to you about what happened when you eat forbidden fruit can I take a few moments and just drill down into your psyche for a moment because every single time that you dive into sin it happens the same way every person who's ever lived has entered sin the same way it starts out with a little subtle sin which becomes more and more desirable, which makes you begin to doubt the truth of God's Word. And if it has ever been evident, it's the day we're living in. People are claiming they are born this way. This book disputes that. You can't be born this way because the Bible says He created us in His image and likeness, created us He and she, created us to be able to procreate and have offspring after our own kind he can't create penguins that give giraffes it doesn't happen that way so the the world says well obviously the Bible doesn't apply to me because I was born this way or I feel this way or my feelings are this way or my emotions are like that and instead of running to God with our doubts and confusion we run to other sources of influence who will tell us what we want to hear not what we need to hear and we will listen to that counsel and if we listen to it long enough we'll become convinced of something that is simply not true and we start doing the things that God told us not to do because we have been convinced that what we heard from somebody else ha- has overruled the master of the universe but I've come to tell you on week one of this series there is no rule except this book and if you find somebody that contradicts this book the Bible says let God be true and every man be a liar so if Genesis chapter 3 does not exist this book is really short If Genesis chapter 3 doesn't exist we don't need the rest of this book the rest of this book tells us the consequences of Genesis chapter 3 the rest of this book tells us the consequences of eating that fruit and I want to give you that how one fruit changed the world how one fruit there's two things you learn too late about sin two things one sin promises to give you what you want but it always makes you lose what you need you find that out too late usually after you've lost something and the second thing sin doesn't keep its promises it promises you to give what you want But it doesn't keep its promise God said it was so it was good God said it was so it was good God said it was so it was good on and on and on for six days of creation God said it was so and it was good the word creates the word create I told you only Elohim can create only God can create so the word creates the fruit produces I don't have time to get into this I hope you can get it cuz I gotta move the word creates fruit produces after its own kind so I'm gonna give you a list of things that sin has done in your life because of this one fruit and how it changed the world. The Word creates order. Fruit, forbidden fruit, produces chaos. See, if you get God involved in anything, that thing will stabilize. Order will come to the house if God comes into the house. But if you let sin run wild, chaos is going to overtake every good thing that you had going on. Adam and Eve had face-to-face talks with God. But once sin got into the house, one of their sons killed his brother. Why? It was just a piece of fruit. No, that's what sinned up. It takes one piece of fruit and produces chaos. Consequences happen because of you. Then they happen to you. I'm going to say it again that I just added this this morning consequences happen because of you then they happen to you which means this once you bite the fruit you made the choice what you had control over is now suddenly something in your life that is out of your control so consequences happen because you bit the fruit but once you bite the fruit you can't stop the consequences now they are in control. So chaos. the word creates comfort. Bible says they were naked and unashamed in front of God and each other. When Eve took selfies, she didn't have to do it like this to hide her neck fat. They were walking around strolling through the garden without any clothes on, what nobody embarrassed in front of God, in front of each other. Yeah, when she was taking selfies, she didn't care what angle it was. She didn't have no neck fat. They were naked and unashamed because the Word creates comfort. Forbidden fruit produces shame. Before sin, they didn't realize that there could be any flaws in what God created. But sin made them see flaws and convince them they have to hide it. So they went and sewed fig leaves together trying to hide their shame. The word creates life forbidden fruit produces death when God created Edom he didn't build a cemetery because the word creates life his word and his plan involves eternal life when he built Eden he didn't put a cemetery in because Adam and Eve wasn't supposed to ever die his word creates life but forbidden fruit produces death sin produces the hunger to get what feels good right now but the result of sin is always the same death the devil's plan for your life is destruction the word is trying to bring life to you his plan is destruction and whatever he promises you that path will always lead you to death the word creates connection forbidden fruit produces distance what the devil say to Eve eat the fruit and you'll know what God knows you'll be like God they ate the fruit and instead of being closer to God it separated them from God the word creates connection forbidden fruit always produces distance so that's it. That's the first dot. And for the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to see more and more examples of chaos and shame and death and distance. What does the forbidden fruit produce? Chaos, shame, death, and distance. The rest of this Old Testament, we're going to see more and more and more examples. Of chaos and shame and death and distance as we start telling you these stories and start connecting these dots you're going to see man make more and more and more stupid choices and bring more and more consequences and God will draw them back to himself and they're going to separate themselves why because the wages of sin is always death the forbidden fruit will continually through the Old Testament we're going to see more and more examples of chaos and shame and death and distance until we get to the book of Matthew where the answer for sin comes in the form of a newborn baby and the answer for sin breaks the back Of 4,000 years of chaos and distance and confusion and shame and death. Yeah, that little baby that's going to be born to a virgin woman in in a cave somewhere in Bethlehem is going to be the answer that we have been waiting for. And when we get there, we're going to see that sin has lost its grip on humanity. But until then, man had to learn how to live with chaos. So I wonder this morning, how many of you are living with chaos in your life? Chaos, shame, death, and distance. Chaos, shame, death, and distance. I wonder how many of you are living with chaos. I wonder how many people under the sound of my voice this morning wake up, And don't know what to expect out of every day because the chaos that surrounds you is just too much for you to bear. And you're constantly trying to find some peace, but chaos is on every time. How about people here that have death all around you? And I'm not talking about physical death. I'm talking about you're living with a lifeless marriage. or Maybe your faith has checked out and died and withered on the vine. I wonder how many people under the sound of my voice this morning is living with shame and guilt. Because you knew to do right and you knew what you were doing was wrong. But you were convinced that if you ate the forbidden fruit you would get what it promised. But sin never keeps its promises. And you sit in a church like this and you feel condemnation and you feel guilt and you feel shame, which leads us to the last result, the last product of forbidden fruit distance. Are you sitting here this morning feeling distant from God? Do you know that if you do feel distant from God, you can always trace it back to a lie that you believed? That snake lied to you and convinced you that if you ate the fruit, your life would get better. And you know it's not. He lied to you and told you that you would finally not be lonely anymore. He lied to you and told you that you would finally find some comfort, somebody that would appreciate you, somebody that didn't take you for granted. He lied to you and told you that if you had kids, it was going to make everything... Straighten out. He lied to you and told you if you switched jobs that you was going to have more money and finally be able to be generous and finally be able to get out of debt. And he lied to you and told you that if that if you uh, did this thing that it would help uh, uh, calm your nerves and and, and 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 take the edge off and the anxiety. And now it has you instead of you having it. And over and over and over again, you can trace back all of your distance from God to a lie that you have believed. But you're here and it's not too late you're here it's not too late I know it's Labor Day weekend a lot of your friends didn't show up for church today this is one of those Sundays where a lot of folks lay out uh, take vacations for the last time for the year and things and, but you're here And so is the healer. So is the answer giver. So is your source and your supply. He is here. And the only thing I have to ask you this morning, and I'm going to get out of your way, is what exactly are you hungry for? Because if Eve would have remained hungry for pleasing God, that fruit would have stayed on that tree. And they would have stayed in His presence. But once that fruit comes off that tree, you and God start separating. Because it never keeps its promises. It promises you a better life and you know it's not. It promises you that you're going to feel loved and you know you don't feel loved. And it's taking you away from the fellowship you used to have. It's taking you away from the God that you used to love. It's taking you away from feeling his, his, his presence so sweet in the altar and in your prayer closet at home. It's taking the Word and replaced it with lies. You know it's true. And you come to church and you feel condemned and you feel like the preacher is fussing at you. But we're not fussing at you. We're angry. We're angry that that fruit ever made it off the tree because had you left it alone, you and God would still be where you were. But the minute you plucked that fruit and you knew better, distance started separating you and God. And we're not angry with you. We're angry with the results of sin. And we're adamant to let you know that it's not too late. You've still got a chance. The fruit will never go back on that tree, but I promise you that in the cool of the day, you serve a God that'll walk through that wilderness and find you hiding in the bushes and say, where are you? Come out. I want to still have fellowship with you. And it's not like it was, but I have not abandoned you. I have not forsaken you. I haven't given up on you. So you had a divorce. God didn't quit on you. You went through a bankruptcy. God isn't mad at you. You made some mistakes. You fell down. You got in a relationship you should have never been in. God is not finished with you. He'll come into that same garden and find you hiding in the bushes and say, What are you doing in there? It'll never be the same as it was. But I haven't left you. I have not Abandoned you So on this Labor Day weekend The first dot Is a sad Terrible Day in human history But it's also a revelation That the God that made us out of nothing Can recreate us out of the same stuff So some of you are sitting here listening to me saying, I feel like a nothing and a nobody. That's good because God takes nothing and makes everything. He takes nothing and nobodies and creates prophets and preachers and teachers and worshipers and prayer warriors and demon chasers and faith believers and healers and spirit baptizers. He takes folks that don't have anything to offer. He puts his grace and his mercy and his love and he weaves a tapestry of devotion to you the likes of which you have never seen because folks have let you down and situations have let you down and churches have disappointed you and preachers have let you down and your boss have let you go but God has been a brother that sticks a friend that sticks closer than a brother he's never left you nor forsook you he's here right now and he picks up the broken pieces that forbidden fruit may have separated you but God in his mercy is saying it's not too late I still desire you So I would be derelict in my duties if I let you get out of here this morning and didn't invite you to come to this altar if you feel distant from God because I feel this in my spirit. I know I've preached a long time. I gave you a long introduction. But I would be derelict in my duties if I let you get out of here this morning without giving you an invitation to come to this altar and say, Pastor, I'm tired of feeling far away from God because I promise you He's only a prayer away. He's only a praise away. He's only a shout away. He he is only as far away as you allow Him to be. This is your moment. This is your opportunity. The forbidden fruit can never be put back on that tree. It's not going to happen. The ramifications and the consequences have been chasing you down and beating you up and running you over. But today, you can come back to the Father today you can close the gap if you take one step God will take every other step to get to you I promise you that so if every person in here would stand to their feet this morning I'm gonna make it easier for you to come if you so desire and I'm going to get out of your way because I've out preached my welcome if you feel distant from God Make your way to this altar this morning. Just have some alone time with Him. You don't need 15 people around you. You don't need somebody speaking words over you necessarily. You just need some alone time with the Father. I've been too far away for too long, and I need to come back. And if that's nobody in this room, praise Jesus. I don't believe it, but praise Jesus. But if it's you, Make your way down to this altar and just say, God, I'm coming back. I need to meet you here. I need you now. God bless you. You've been walking the same old road for miles and miles.